you want to make sure that you're mailing the right people. So a mistake that I see some people make is they'll mail people from a list. Maybe it's a notice of default list. Somebody's behind on their mortgage. So when you're mailing, you don't want to mail to somebody who bought their house two years ago. Best ever listeners, before we jump into today's episode, for all my fix and flippers out there, are your financing costs eating away at your bottom line? And are you looking for a way to increase your overall profits by lowering your loan payments to the bank or maybe your private lender? Well, our best ever sponsor, Patch of Land, you know Patch of Land, they've been on the show, representatives of their company have been on the show many times, they've been a sponsor of this show many, many times, they're back for more because they love you and they love working with the best ever listeners and they've got an interesting point of view on interest rates and that is that it's the interest rates that we are quoted shouldn't necessarily be taken at face value because perhaps a higher interest rate could actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan and they have a white paper on how that is possible and how that can be applied to your fix and flip business to help your bottom line get more profitable and to help you choose the best uh, lender for your financing needs. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless, and they've got a white paper for you, and it will walk you through the way to evaluate interest rates in terms in general on your loan so that you truly are getting the best interest rate. Because there are some tricky things some lenders try to do to um, glaze over the fact that their lower interest rate, quote unquote, is actually higher based on some technical things that they put into it. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless and get that white paper so that you can save money on your fix and flip projects. Patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluff with us today. Tom Caffarella. How you doing, Tom? I'm doing awesome. Thank you for having me on. Well, my pleasure. Nice to have you on the show. Tom is based in Boston, Massachusetts. He's the owner broker of Cameron Real Estate Group. He's a founder of Ocean City Development, which is a residential real estate investing company. His company buys everything from single family houses to up to 10 unit properties. He quit his full-time job as a CPA in 2008 so he could flip full-time with three partners and you can say hi to him at his website, tomcaffarellas.com. He's also the host of Real Estate Mogul Podcast. So with that being said, Tom, you want to get the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah. My background, like you mentioned, I was an accountant out of school, hated it, hated getting to work every single day. And I ended up getting fired because I was spending so much time reading online about real estate investing. <laughs> So luckily for me, I was pretty young. This was 10 years ago. I was 25 at the time. I didn't need to make a lot of money. And I knew at that point I needed to make a decision. I needed to go one way or the other. Either I was going to stay in corporate America or I was going to figure out how to be an entrepreneur, how to be a real estate investor. So I just started failing on my own, just trying every single thing and finally figured it out. And today we're doing over 100 fix and flips a year. 
like you mentioned, I've got a real estate brokerage of over 150 members. And just basically right now, as of October 2017, trying to make as much money as I can while we're in a market that allows us to make a lot of money. Are you holding on to any of these properties? I am, but I've actually sold off some of my rental portfolio. And I don't know, Joe, what market are you in? I invest in primarily Dallas-Fort Worth right now. Okay, so Dallas has gone through a lot of appreciation, but some of my rentals in the past three years have doubled in price. So it's really difficult for me to consciously hold on to some of them, knowing that it's going to take so much longer for the prices to get up to that price point. So we've sold off some of our rental property portfolio, done some 1031s into other markets, but I do hold on to some, but I make most of my income as of today, fixing and flipping. Okay. You already answered the question that I was going to ask, but I'd like for you to elaborate if you wouldn't mind on the 1031, because I get it. If you see the properties double than what you paid, you sell, then you said you're 1031-ing approximately what percentage of deals that you have sold have you 1031 versus just taking the cash and putting the bank and using it somewhere else? We just started 1031-ing because we just kind of got fed up with paying the taxes. And we just started doing that. And now we're going to try to 1031 everything going forward that we sell. Mm -hmm. All right. So the percentage isn't as important as really your philosophy now. So you're now doing the 1031. From an investor standpoint, when does and doesn't it make sense for you? I think it makes sense if you can get into a market that is more flat, that hasn't had as much appreciation and where you can get a lot of cash flow. I think it doesn't make sense. What I see in a lot of times in my market is people will 1031 over one inflated property and then 1031 into another inflated property. So to me, that doesn't really solve the underlying problem. If you're cashing out to make a lot of money and then you're only 1031ing to save on the taxes, but you're going right into the same market, to me, that doesn't make any sense. Mm, Good point. Really good point. The 100 fix and flips that you're doing, that's a lot of deals. I assume most deals, you're making money. So what are you doing with that money if you're not actively acquiring new deals in your market? We're always actively acquiring new deals. So for buy and hold, I mean. So you're talking about I sell a fix and flip. What am I doing with that money? Yeah. I'm mainly rolling that into more fix and flips. So do we lose money on some of the deals here and there? You know, we might lose money on three deals out of a hundred, but it's pretty far and few between Uh uh, times. So you're creating a larger and larger bankroll for your fix and flip business. And then are you investing in other markets for buy and hold with some of that? Or are you just putting most of it into the bankroll to do more and more fix and flips? Both. We started to invest in Jacksonville, Florida, because it's a market that we like a lot. So we're pushing a lot of money there as of today. And then we also invest back into the brokerage as well, because we see that as kind of a play for us when the economy does start to go down a little bit and dip and we're not making as much on the fix and flips. So really the best way to say what I'm doing with the money now is I'm trying to figure out how to keep making a lot of money when the market changes. And we're anticipating that happening pretty soon. So 
my income might go down, but I don't want it to go to zero. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that we're putting a lot of emphasis on as of today. And you said one of the ways is to invest back into the brokerage. Yep. Another would be, is that the investing strategy in Jacksonville? The investing strategy in Jacksonville is to buy cash flow properties. So okay. in Jacksonville, you can buy single families that still cash flow right now. And I like that model a lot. So I like to look at what's going to happen when the fix and flip income goes to zero. How much am I going to make? So right now we're putting a lot of emphasis in building my brokerage, buying cash flow properties in other markets. We've got cash flow properties in the current market. And I also have a partnership program where I partner with people out of state and help them fix and flip properties. And I make money on that too. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of my other revenue pillars to make sure that, again, when the market does change, I'm still making good money. Mm -hmm. As far as the brokerage goes, when you invest money back into the brokerage, what are you investing in specifically? And how do you track that that has an ROI? For example, we just did an $80,000 build out of our office. So what ends up happening is you put the 80 grand into it. How do we track the ROI? We're looking at year over year, what we're doing for sales volume and number of agents. So for example, two years ago, I only had five agents in my brokerage and I didn't need to do an $80,000 build out. But now that I'm up to 150 agents, I need to do the build out to attract more. So eventually I want to have somewhere between 500 and 1,000 agents in the greater Boston area. So we need to build ahead of that space. Mm -hmm. So other things in terms of reinvesting back into the brokerage to get that to grow would be hiring specific staff. So for example, I just recently hired a sales manager who is responsible for helping the agents get from point A to point B. So she'll work with them directly and coach them in order to get their sales up. So investing in capital expenditures and in labor as well. What's the lifetime value of a new agent that joins your brokerage to you? To me, minimum, probably about thirty dollars to $40,000. That's incredible. Again, it's about who you're bringing on, how you can help them, and how long they stick around. So if you get somebody good, they're willing to work hard, you can train them it's very profitable. But of course, the thing that is a little bit difficult on the brokerage side is people can come and go as they please. And they're always getting recruited by other top brokerages. So if you don't do a really good job of helping them, then you're going to lose them. Mm -hmm. At 150 brokers, $30,000 lifetime value, that's $4.5 million. That's great. I'm glad you talked to us about that. That's helpful for anyone who has a brokerage, just how to think about it, or anyone who's joining a brokerage, their value to their team. The reason besides having the multiple revenue pillars to get us through the storm when the market changes, we needed people to take our leads. So as a real estate investor who fixes and flips over 100 houses a year in a very competitive market, we have to get to sellers before their property goes live on the MLS. So we have a huge marketing budget to get face-to-face with these sellers. And we needed agents in order to take these leads, in order to take these face-to-face appointments. So our brokerage has kind of grown on the back of those leads. Mm -hmm. And then obviously when we go to fix and flip a property, we can put a sign in the ground, we can promote the properties that we're going to be selling. So we generate a ton of buyer leads. So it really works hand in hand. So if you're 
a real estate investor, you have such an easy platform to become a big real estate brokerage. That's a great point and something that could be another revenue stream. So thanks for mentioning that. You started out, I believe, because I'm reading this in your bio, with three partners. Is that correct? I've got two partners. I started out with two partners. Oh, you started with two. Okay. You have two partners. So you're the third and you still have those two other partners. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's segregation of duties. So in the investment side of the business, I'm the person who's responsible for generating leads and getting properties under contract at a really good price so that we can make money. I also run the real estate brokerage. My two partners manage the construction and the accounting and legal side of the fixing and flipping business so that we all have separate duties, we all have separate roles, and we all work really, really hard and don't get in each other's way for the most part. Mm-hmm. The construction, accounting, and legal, does one person handle the construction and the other two accounting and legal? Exactly. So essentially, I'm typically in the office managing the salespeople who are out making my offers for fix and flips and listing properties. My second partner is out in the field managing the contractors. My third partner is in the office making sure that we're lining up financing, making sure that we're getting the deals closed, making sure that any legal work, architectural work that needs to get done, permitting, basically all of the administrative work behind the business itself is getting done. That leads me to believe that you're the one who's really charged with the growth of the company. Oh, yeah. Basically, they say to me, I create the messes. Yeah. (laughs) But, but, But it's my job to create the messes. So if it wasn't for me, there would be no business to be had. But if it wasn't for them, there would be a lot of business, but it wouldn't be getting serviced. So it's great that you can get a good deal under contract, but if you can't actually renovate the property, then there's nothing that can be done there. Mm-hmm. Understood. Tell us the story of a deal that you've done recently, just to give us an idea of what type of projects you're working on. They're all kind of the same. They're cookie cutter, typical single families. In in my market, we might buy something for 300000 put Fifty or $60,000 into it and then sell it somewhere in the high fours, low fives in that range. We do so many and it's basically like just a factory that for the most part, for me, not many of them stand out anymore. The ones that stand out are the ones that we did in the early days where I was really actively involved negotiating with the sellers, getting face-to-face, sweating out every deal. But now it's kind of like they come and they go and I don't think too much about them anymore. Based on your experience, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? My best advice is you have got to learn the sales and marketing aspect of it. I see way too many people, especially today, trying to get deals on the MLS, trying to buy properties off HUD, trying to do things really the easy way, and they can never get a good deal. And if you can control the sales and marketing funnel, so if you can market to get face-to-face with sellers and then do the sales part to get the great deals, you can make a ton of money. But if you try to shortcut that and not create the sales and marketing funnel, you'll never make a lot of money in this business and you'll always struggle to get a good deal and you'll start buying deals that don't make sense because you need to do your next deal. So that would be my advice. Learn the marketing and sales side before you learn anything else. What are some tips that you have on the marketing and sales side? 
There's only three things that work when you talk about trying to generate leads for sellers in today's market. There's cold calling, which you can do for free. There's online marketing, Google AdWords, Facebook ads, which you can pay for. And there's mailing. Those are the three things that work really, really well. They all have a different cost. They all have a different type of lead that will come through. So my advice would be to put together a budget if you can and put it into one of those three mechanisms. If you don't have a budget to me, then you have to cold call, which is fine. You can definitely generate a lot of face-to-face appointments that way, but that's your only option if you don't have any money. Which of those three has been the best ROI for your company? That changes. So we're having this conversation in October 2017. October 2017, Facebook ads for me are the biggest bang for your buck. It changes though because the market becomes crowded. So three or four years ago, I would have told you mailers, but as of October 2017, everybody's mailing. So when we go on a mailer lead, typically we'll go on that appointment and stacked on that person's dining room table will be 10 other letters. So obviously the point of marketing in general is to eliminate your competition, to not have a bunch of bidding on a property. So you want to go where other people aren't going. So number one for me right now would be Facebook. Number two would be cold calling and we pay people to cold call for us. Mm -hmm. One thing that's not in one, two or three is word of mouth referrals and intentionally having a system to generate word of mouth. Do you have anything for that? I've never seen anybody effectively do that. And I'll tell you why I don't think that that works because the majority of sellers period, don't sell to investors. So maybe 5% of the overall population sells to an investor. So you only know so many people in your sphere of influence. And I know this from my real estate brokers that work for me. From your sphere of influence, you might only sell 10 properties a year. The good agents, maybe they sell 20. So if a good agent is always prospecting to their sphere of influence and they're selling 20 houses a year and only 5% of typical sellers sell to an investor, That's only one investment deal a year. So to me, the problem with the sphere of influence is that you're not in control of your business. So if you really want to have a pipeline of doing a ton of deals, I don't think that sphere of influence stuff will work. Maybe you get lucky, you do one a year or two a year, but I don't think that you can really create a huge company off of sphere of influence when it comes to that. You don't get many referrals when you buy properties at a discount. It's just not typically a referral-based business. Got it. As far as Facebook goes, you said that's number one. What are you doing there? We're just writing ads to people. So we're putting ads up in front of them, sell your house fast for cash, click here to get your offer today. And they're clicking on it. That goes into my CRM. My inside sales agent is making that call to book one of our agents to go to a face-to-face appointment. So we're not doing anything magical on Facebook other than we are running the right images, the right copy. We are putting it in front of the right people. So when you are talking about Facebook, those are the things that matter. People, when they're on Facebook, they're not looking to sell their property fast. You don't log into Facebook saying, I want to meet with an investor this weekend. But if you put that ad in front of the right people, and it's crazy what Facebook knows about you today. Facebook knows how old you are. Facebook knows where you work. Facebook even knows if you're likely thinking about selling your property. How is that possible? (laughs) Based on what people's interests are. So for example, one of the things that you can look for is somebody looking for loans. So 
somebody that's looking for loans is looking to buy, but it's also possible that they're looking to sell. So Facebook does know if you own property because what Facebook does is they will actually take the data that they have and they'll run it against other data. So Facebook automatically knows your age because this is required in Facebook. They know your age, they know your name, they know the city that you live in, and then they'll run that data against public records to see if you're a homeowner. So Facebook knows if you're a homeowner or not. And if you're a homeowner that's looking at mortgage rates or something like that, you are possibly thinking about selling. So that's just one example of someone that is possibly thinking about one indicator that will lead them to believe that you're possibly thinking about selling. And it's not 100% accurate. But when you run the algorithm the right way, you get your cost per lead down a lot. So I used to pay on Facebook somewhere between two and $300 a lead. But now that I've got my filters down correctly, I'm at about $100 a lead, which is very, very low for a motivated seller lead. Did you learn that yourself or do you have a team? I have a team. I have somebody that just runs these ads for me. And I actually started now running ads for other investors in other parts of the country too, because they were experiencing that the cost per lead was really high. So we ended up just offering that as a service. But the reality is like on Facebook, you just have to keep trying and testing. So the person who runs them for me will split test all day long. So they'll say, what is the cost per lead if I run this image? Okay, great. How does that compare to the second image? Okay, I'm running the ad in front of this city. Okay, how does it compare to this other city? And they just keep working and split testing to get the cost per lead down as low as possible. With cold calling and mailing, any top of mind tip for either of those? Well, they're different. So when it comes to cold calling, you need to get good data. So you need to make sure that you're getting cell phone records, which is the biggest mistake that most people make is that they'll get home phone numbers and have a lot of difficulty. And you need to load them into a three-line dialer so that you're calling anywhere between five and 600 people a day. Mm. So that would be my tip on the cold calling. On the mailing, there's a couple things. The first is that you want to make sure that you're mailing the right people. So a mistake that I see some people make is they'll mail people from a list. Maybe it's a notice of default list, somebody's behind on their mortgage. So when you're mailing, you don't want to mail to somebody who bought their house two years ago because it's unlikely that they're going to even be selling, period. You also don't want to mail to people who are in a younger demographic. So I'm a 35-year-old guy. 35-year-old guys don't tend to sell to investors. So you just want to make sure if you're mailing that you're mailing to the right type of person and the right type of property. Ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes. Let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Today's sponsor, Patch of Land, has got the document for you that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper. They show you how a higher interest rate can actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan. And conversely, how a lower interest rate could deliver a higher cost to your fix and flip loan. Needless to say, you got to know this stuff to identify the best loan terms. Go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Get this document, patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end of the work week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com. Best ever book you've read. 
Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Best ever deal you've done that you haven't talked about? Man, that's a tough <laughs> that, that I haven't talked about. I don't know. Well, that, that I, you haven't talked about with us. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, yep. we might be my first deal. I wholesaled <laughs> something and I made 115000 two family in Somerville, Massachusetts. Your first deal? My first deal, yes. You made how much? 115 on a wholesale. And I've made more on deals, but that was the luckiest deal based on the skill that I had and what I was doing at that time. Why didn't you just retire? <laughs> well, <laughs> man, you know what? That deal actually hurt me though because I made so much that I started doing the wrong things because I didn't have the skills necessary to really ramp uh-huh. up the business. So I got lucky. And then what I ended up doing, unfortunately, was I spent a lot of that money on marketing and I went a long time before doing my second deal. Mm. I'm glad we got the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say on that. That's good. What's a mistake you've made on a deal? A mistake I've made on a deal is I've made this mistake multiple times. I bought a deal that on paper looks good and the numbers work on paper and then not thinking, is somebody going to want to live in this house? And it probably sounds really stupid, but if you run comps in an area and your ARV is a certain number and your formula tells you you can pay 150000 that doesn't always necessarily mean you should pay 150000 If nobody's going to want to live in that house at the end of the day, I wouldn't buy it. And just simple things like if it has super low ceilings or a terrible layout, then I would just think twice about buying that property. Best ever way you like to give back? Best ever way I like to give back is raising up people in my brokerage. So helping people that work for me make a lot of money. And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? The best way to get in touch with me would be to go to my URL, www.realestateinvestingiseasy.com. And if they go in there and they put in their email, they'll get onto my newsletter. And I hold trainings every single day for people who want to get into real estate. And it's totally free. So if you put in your email at www.realestateinvestingiseasy.com, you'll get the links with all of that information and how you can get on that free training each and every week. You've got a machine and I appreciate you showing us the inner workings of it. Thank you for being on the show, talking about how you're doing 100 deals, fix and flips a year, what you all are doing, and that is you're preparing for when the market changes, having revenue streams, three ways you're doing that. One is your brokerage, where on average it's thirty to $40,000 lifetime's value of a new broker who joins. Two is to buy cash flow properties and you're looking and actively involved in Jacksonville, Florida, even though you're in Boston, Massachusetts. And three is a partner program where you help people do fix and flips and you get a cut of the action. So thanks for being on the show. Plus talking about the marketing tips, the three ways to get sales and leads. Really appreciate you spending time with us. Hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Joe. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end-of-the-work-week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com.